0: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. I just had the pleasure of sitting down with Father Maudsley. We had an excellent conversation. I don't know if you saw our episode from a couple months ago, but that was a great one as well. And we talked about his very controversial new book, which is just published, called If You Believed Moses. You can find a link for that in the description to this video. And we spoke about the Jewish question. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that's a pretty controversial topic, and it is. And... I think you're going to like our conversation uh, because we take into account all of the various opinions that people have whether good or bad and Father Maudsley is animated by a love for the Jews and you might be thinking to yourself, hold on, that's not something I necessarily always find within traditional Catholicism, and you'd be right but it's because if you think that somebody is your enemy theologically, politically, or whatever then you must love them and you must pray for them. This is the Christian thing to do. And And we tried to keep that as the spirit of the conversation. And ultimately he shows us how in the scriptures that the conversion of the Jews is evident in the typology in so many of the events in scriptures. When he shows you, it's literally everywhere. His new book, if you believe Moses, it's volume one. Um, it's indispensable. It should be in every Catholic's library. I don't care if you're in every Catholic's library. I don't care if you're a conservative Novus Ordo or a traditional Catholic or whatever. You need to get this book. It is a a magnificent. It is a magnum opus. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, It is a masterpiece of biblical theology and typology. It's absolutely fascinating. You know, as we were doing this interview, I thought to myself, Someone needs to tell this to Ben Shapiro. You know, you've seen Bishop Barron um, be interviewed by Shapiro. You've seen other Christians and they kind of miss the mark. And Father Modsley shows that it's literally, it's not just in the New Testament, but the New Testament is the key to unlocking the meaning of the Old Testament about God's plans for the Jews. And there's a very special plan for the Jews indeed. And that involves their conversion, which is which is in every single aspect um, of the Old Testament. And it's plain as day when he shows you someone, find a way to show this to Ben Shapiro. And uh, so I hope you enjoyed the video. Now, of course, one of the things that we do love about our elder brothers, which actually is a Catholic term traditionally, by the way, so uh, watch the video for that. Not the way that it's used in the Novus Ordo con- context, Sort of modern, but it is, a, it is a thing. One of the things you got to love about uh, folks from the Levant region, the Levantine brethren over there, is they do grow pretty good beards. And we tend to see those on um, images and statues and things like that from characters in the Old Testament. So I don't know if they would ever enjoy TKR beard products, but you probably would. And uh, let's say thank you to our sponsor, the TKR Store. unityreport.com and visit the TKR Store to see our new products. Kennedy's Choice Beard Oil. You can use this on your beard to help with alleviating itchiness, dryness, and irritation of skin. And don't worry, no animals were used in testing this product except for myself. Use Kennedy's Choice Beard Balm for a softer, healthier, manageable beard that is made with natural ingredients. And trust me, I know a thing or two about beards. Visit the KennedyReport.com and check out the TKR store. The links for this are in the description. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all jokes aside, please check out the links in the description for the TKR products. Um, We also have another product from that region of the world, the Middle East, in our lineup, the frankincense soil. And that's enough product placement for today. Thank you for all your patience and for helping keep the lights on. Enjoy this video with Father Maudsley, and I'll see you later. I'm here with Father Maudsley, and he is... He has recently published a book called, If You Believed Moses, and this is volume one. You can see it right here. And it is about the conversion prophesied of the Jews in the Old Testament. Volume two is church fathers or New Testament.
1: Um, it's about the conversion of the Jews as a close of history. So it's much more
0: close of history, more apocalyptic. Um, and so this one is all about the Jews, the conversion of the Jews prophesied in the Old Testament. I'm reading through it, it is phenomenal. We actually already recorded about 10 minutes of this interview, but little gremlins in technology didn't want it to happen, so we're here doing it again. Um, So thank you, Father Maudzi, for your patience. And um, okay, you gave a wonderful five-minute breakdown of sort of why you wrote the book. Uh, No one's ever gonna hear it because of the silly technology. So maybe you could recreate that for us. Father, why did you write the book and um to what end?
1: Um, it's It's actually connected with the um closure of the churches for a couple of years uh, under the Covid regime, and then tradition custodus, the church abandoning her tradition. And this is trying to get what's what is behind that. and um, And the volume two will deal with why they're all connected but it's such a contentious subject. I think, first of all, I want to put out volume one to help Catholics see that the conversion of the Jews at the end of the age is something real. It certainly will happen. We can have faith in it, and we can have a joyful hope in it because it's going to be this immense good and incredible. Like, you know what, you want a movie to have a good ending. Well, God has written history. It is gonna have the most fantastic surprise Ending. We know some outlines, but we don't know how this will come about. And it will help fill us with charity because perfect love casts out fear. If you're afraid, you hate. Mm-hmm. But if you're not afraid, there's no, no place for hate. So we, we can desire their conversion and pray for it. And if there's um, misunderstanding or worse, and um, then we, we can bear that. We can we can bear the the troubles that we'll get for talking about this.
0: Right. And yeah, let's address that quick too, because um this question, the Jewish question, I know that means something different when Hilaire Belloc uses that in a in a in a technical sense, but this whole question of talking about Judaism, the Jews converting to Christianity, Israel, and so forth, this is very contentious for a lot of people. And um I want to say my little spiel about how I think there are good there's a good way to talk about it there's actually kind of two pitfalls and i think there's sort of a via media um and then perhaps you can comment as well so on the one hand and i mentioned this briefly in our last video which if you haven't watched that ladies and gentlemen was called resist until it hurts i think is what it's called Uh, a wonderful interview from about three months ago and um on the one hand there's this been this influence of well very much a, a a noah Hyde. Judeo post temple Judaism principle that we'll get into uh, where it's basically Israel is a shining city on the hill this is very common amongst evangelicals of conservative Catholics Um, you know you need to support because because Jews are in the Bible Christians need to support them with all their heart all their mind and all their soul this leads to supporting a lot of the policies of Israel which have just been objectively speaking from a geopolitical perspective pretty bad Um, You know, I don't care if it's a Muslim, Jewish, or Christian country, acting the way they've acted has just been wrong in so many cases. Um, On the other hand, there's another pitfall that people fall into where, if we could call that sort of like Jewish exceptionalism, almost like American exceptionalism, on the other hand, you fall into this genetic fallacy. I mean, it really is a basic philosophical fallacy where you can't distinguish, you know, uh, persons from policy. You can't distinguish the individual from the group. And I don't care what kind of group you're talking about. If you do that, this is a literal fallacy philosophically. You you apply immutable characteristics to an individual because of blood relation, whether it's skin color, whether it's place of birth, whatever it is, it doesn't make any sense because all human beings have free will. And that stops you from being able to address the person. And Christ always addressed individual persons and he spoke to them having the image of god in their souls all people have this uh, made in the image of god and then if you follow those two extremes on the one hand you get the very bitter hateful resentful i hate the term racist because everything is racist nowadays but let's just use that for lack of a better term let's say you know bigoted if that makes sense on the other hand you fall into an unrealistic position on the other side is that would you maybe say that's a, a good way of framing it
1: yes and the and um, looking into the Bible, in fact, gives us a, a perfect formula to understand this. It's that there's a mortal enmity from the elder brother to the younger brother who represent Judaism, Christianity. And some people want to by and um, defect. They say there is no enmity. We're all brothers. And you end up with the universal fraternity of Francis, which is a disaster and a lack of charity leads to help. The other fault is to say there's such an enmity that there can't be brotherhood because Mm -hmm. we're thinking in a way. So you hear people say the Jews are the synagogue of Satan. That's it, full stop. They can't possibly convert. They can't be saved. Write them off and we should hate them. That's that's also against Christ and what he showed us on the cross. The fact is that, that the New Testament gives us a key to unlock the Torah and the Old Testament. And so we can understand for example, St. Paul, well, it begins with Jesus talking about, for example, the two brothers and the prodigal son. And then the church fathers finding multiple instances in the life of Christ and his miracles and his teachings that of the final conversion of the Jews, which I, I write about in the book. Then we have St. Paul. Look at Ishmael and Isaac. They represent the synagogue and the church as the children of Hagar and Sarah. The earthly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the slave woman, the bond woman and the free woman, the one who were conceived carnally in the flesh and the other Isaac by a promise of God, a miraculous conception. So Ishmael and Isaac are kind of key here. And then he, St. Paul, uh, tells us more about Jacob and Esau, that the elder persecuted the younger. He said the carnal persecutes the spiritual. And so it is now. The church fathers tell us that Cain and Abel represent the the Jews and Christ, and also that Joseph and his brothers is a picture of the Jews and Christ. And again, that Joseph went through all that suffering, which he saw as providential. He accepted as Christ took his passion, although it took Joseph probably longer to figure out what was happening. But when his brothers were terrified at the end that he was going to have bad memories and be angry, he spoke to them mildly. He was weeping and embracing them, and kissing them, and then showered Benjamin, who is the last generation of Israel, by the way. His father Jacob is called Israel. Benjamin's the last son. He's the last generation of Israel. And Joseph gave him five festal garments and 300 pieces of silver, I think, and a fivefold um, serving at the banquet, which is a, a picture of holy mass. Mm-hmm. There's so many clues in the Bible. So we have Joseph who was willing to suffer in order, he said, to feed the world, save the world, and to save his brothers. He, God protected Ishmael when he was cast out in the desert, right? God protected yeah. Ishmael. God protected Cain. He said he put a mark on Cain. And whoever right. or Cain, come back sevenfold on them. He protected Esau in that... He said to the Israelites after, you shall not have a foot of land in Edom. Do not go to war against your brothers and say it because he's given that land to them. God protected Joseph's brothers through Joseph and supplied for them. So we've seen actually the church through history has supplied for Jews and protected them. Although we hear a very different history from falsified history. Yes. So all time you have this divine protection of the Jews which means the church has understood this in her laws, that she may not harm the Jews, but um, she has to recognize that their denial of Christ being the son of God and the Messiah is the most spiritually dangerous thing on this planet. Mm -hmm. However, at the end, we have this faith in their conversion, which we see in a sense in Moses and Aaron. Should I continue or?
0: Oh yeah, let's, let's hold that for a sec because We don't want to give away the whole book in the first 10 minutes. Um, And uh, there's two things I really wanted to go into here. Um, The first one is Jacob and Esau. So I was reading your book last night. Everyone knows I'm kind of a night owl. It was, you know, midnight or one in the morning. And I'm sitting here reading this book. My wife's actually away on vacation with her best friend. They both had traumatic injuries this year. And they are one of her best friends. They needed time. So me and my good buddy, we sent them away to the beach to get some rest. And um, so my little girl was homesick and, you know, missing her mom. So she was sleeping beside me and I was reading a book anyway. And the part about, so I'm, I've never heard this until I read your book. So Jacob and Esau, um, this is, this, if I'm not, I'm not getting the brothers mixed up. This is where um, uh, the one comes out hairy and red. And, okay, okay. And then when they, the way they describe the brothers... Because that's such a strange detail. He was covered in hair and red. It's like, what? What does that even mean? He's a little gremlin or something. Like you don't even know what it means. And then, but then you explained how they would describe Esau as being this manly hunter. You know, he seems like the good guy. And then the way it's translated, oh, and Jacob just dwelled in tents. It's like, sounds like he lays around. But actually it's a religious thing. It means he is in the temple all the time. It's prefiguring the fact that he's in the tabernacle all the time. Could you break down that Jacob and Esau thing? Because I found that so fascinating.
1: Yes, St. Louis Marie de Montfort, quoting the father says that uh, Jacob being a man who dwelt in tents means he's close to his mother, Rebecca, meaning Mary, and he's a man of contemplation and prayer. The word the Vulgate uses is simplex, He's simple. The Greek word, it, it translates as formless, even not just simple, but formless in a way that God is formless without form because he's, he transcends yeah. all forms. It's an amazing word. And the Hebrew word it indicates someone who is in, in integral, uh, decent, honest. So th- this is Jacob. Now, Esau is the hunter, um, using the word the first time, I think, in Genesis since, since we heard of Nimrod, who is a, a type yeah. of the Antichrist who, who hunts men. Um, And Esau is carnal so that when he lost his birthright to Jacob, which signifies the covenant going, the old covenant ending and the new covenant beginning, and Christ is the one who inherits it and every Christian in him, Esau didn't even care after he had lost it because he had a full stomach. He said he he walked away despising his birthright because he just wanted a full stomach, which means the things of this world. I got that detail from the rabbis, from listening to the rabbis, that they see that Esau had, didn't have the spiritual priorities. But, of course, the rabbis don't understand how it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ.
0: Hmm. Okay, yeah, that's really fascinating. And then there's another aspect. Is this, with, is, is this with Isaac and Ishmael, the word play? Is that where that is? Yeah. Can you break yeah. that down? Because I know that you also see this word. I uh, There was a great sermon I listened to years ago about the golden calf of evolution by a patritional priest from the United States. And he showed how when the Israelites rose up to play, it actually refers to something like a ritual sexualism or something, or some sort of debauchery. And so you're so this word is in there, in the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Could you please explain that to us?
1: I will. And if, if I forget, if we come back to that, how Ishmael and Isaac both buried their father together and Jacob and Esau did. And Joseph and his brothers. This is key about the reconciliation, giving a little okay. liturgical. I'm going
0: to put a note here so we don't forget it. Both buried the father. Good. Right.
1: So the word play when um, Abraham and Sarah were told that it was announced to them that they would this time actually you'll have a son, uh, they both laughed. I think Abraham had his face to the floor and laughed, and Sarah was behind the door and laughed. And God said, You laughed. And she said, I didn't laugh. And he said, You did laugh. Um, and they call their son Isaac, which means laughter, which is so fitting. And w- we might think it's that Sarah didn't believe the announcement, and that's why she laughed, thinking, Shall a woman of my age have pleasure, which is the word for Eden, by the way? It's about restoring Eden. Mm. But in Mary, we see it um, exalted to be this heavenly joy at the Annunciation. But this word "play," which is the same root as the name of Isaac, it says when he was the boy was weaned, he he could have been quite a bit older than we think of when a child is weaned. We're not talking about a two or three year old here. It could be to do with the thirteen years old or twelve years old. Right. So Sarah saw Ishmael, or the son of Hagar, playing with her son, and that the Vulgate and Septuagint add Isaac and so you have this play on the word playing and then sarah says cast cast him out the son of the bondwoman will not inherit with the son of the promise and we're supposed to think that that's a bit of an overreaction from sarah casting a boy out because he was playing with her son but it's it's not an overreaction she represents holy mother church protecting her children from sexual abuse which the church has not been doing for the last decades
0: because that word, because that word "play," is usually look, used in reference to sexual abuse or weirdness. The first
1: time Genesis is in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah It's a bit ominous. Then we have it with Jacob and Isaac and Rebecca, but it's in a positive sense of Isaac caressing Rebecca, but it is a sexual sense. Right. Then we have this Ishmael and Isaac. So I must have the timing wrong there, but um. It's also used for Potiphar's wife accusing Joseph of sexual play, as, as unwanted sexual attention. And it's the word, as as you said, in Exodus, after the golden calf that they sat down to eat and rose to play, which is fornication, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's also the word used for when Samson was tortured, that it says they made sport of him. God knows yeah. what they yeah. attempted to do but it has these multiple other instances where it's used in a sexually perverse or even idolatrous way. And we can see how much sexual perversion is tied up with idolatry and Satanism. Very, very close. That's what Sarah was protecting her son Isaac from, from Ishmael. And we see today how pornography is an industrial scale weapon used against populations to turn them into morons. Um, And that's what the church should be protecting the the faithful from and indeed the world
0: okay so my wheels are spinning here because i'm looking at my notes and we're going to talk about how this idea of basically all good people go to heaven the dual covenant universal brotherhood um versus true brotherhood these are errors that are even in orthodox judaism judge and you show that in your book those errors are rampant in the church i mean this is you know fratelli tutti tutti frutti right like you know we're all brothers and the abrahamic house and all this and even just the idea of calling it an abrahamic house you know uh all these ideas so on the one hand this basically ecumenism is what that is you know uh, as you'll explain to us in a bit orthodox jews are ecumenists, and this is why i'm going to call this episode something like ben shapiro needs to see this because I remember years ago, I haven't listened to Shapiro in years, you know, the odd clip or something, but I used to listen to his podcast when I was a neocon. And um, I guess I'm a recovering neocon now. But he said something like, uh, you know, basically Judaism is all good because we have our covenant and then we believe in this Noahide covenant, which I'll explain in a bit, which basically means as long as you do good things, you can be saved. I was like, okay, well, that's basically universalism in some some capacity. But as we have those errors in the church we also have the error of play in the church. Those two things, meaning meaning as the church has embraced these basically post, post-temple post rabbinic errors in the theological, and and in, 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 the, in the, well, we have a Jewish table blessing in the Novus Ordo for the offertory. Um, as we've embraced these things, we have also seen the errors of the older brother that we see in scripture. Is there something there? Am I on the right track?
1: Absolutely, because Sarah sent Ishmael away to protect Isaac, and in the next generation, Rebecca actually sent Jacob away, who represents Christ, from Esau, who wanted to murder him. So you have this twofold care of the mothers. By the way, the, the half, first half of this book is all about brothers in the Torah, but it finishes with a chapter about the mothers. It's the mothers representing Mary who actually work out the reconciliation. Um, but that's another subject. The, I think we can see this in history in that the church was protected from the murderous Sanhedrin who wanted to wipe out the apostles and the Christians. In the one hand, because the Sanhedrin lost their power base after 70 AD and then 130 AD, and also the, the church went underground. So you have this prudence of Sarah protecting her son Isaac and Rebecca protecting us son Jacob one by sending the evil away, the other actually by sending the good away until it was time to return. And when God decides it was time for Jacob to return, he met him again in a dream, reminded him of his first dream of the ladder that came to heaven. And in this dream of the multiplying flocks, which no one could stop, which as the sign of the Holy Spirit, no one can stop his fruitfulness. Every persecution against the church causes it to grow. He said, now go back and reconcile with your brother Esau. And Jacob was afraid And he sent them ahead in droves, his family, and gifts to Esau to appease him. And I think this is kind of like the church trying to make embassies to the Jews. But we have to understand how to do that right, not exactly to avoid these errors of the Noahide covenant and the idea of universal fraternity, which are absolutely false. Let's talk
0: about about the Noahide idea. Let's break that down, because I don't think a lot of people know what that is.
1: So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs gave a series of talks in 2012 about, I can't remember, a a Jewish theology of the other or something about this. And he's trying to explain how you can have a a dual covenant. He says in the Torah, we find a particular covenant and a universal covenant. The particular covenant is with Abraham, God called Abraham and promised him the land and his descendants to be multiplied, like the stars in heaven or the sand on the seashore. And Rabbi Sachs says this is for the Jews. They are the chosen people, the called people. But with Noah, there was a universal covenant. And that's what's left over for the Gentiles. So you can have dual covenant. One is particular, one is universal. Um, But this this is false. And Rabbi Sachs, perhaps he's absolutely sincere. And he's trying to find a way to say to the Gentiles, don't feel miserable that you're not chosen. So he actually points to both Jacob and Esau and Ishmael and Isaac. Even he understands this is about Christians and Jews, but he gets it the wrong way around. Yeah. And he says, Ishmael and Esau represent the Gentiles and the Torah amazingly writes these two stories in a way which makes us sympathetic for Ishmael and for Esau because they both seem to be hard done by. One was thrown home, and the other lost his birthright, as if he were tricked, but the church fathers see this as a mystery and for reasons I explained in the book, the younger brother represents Christ or the church, at least until the end of time, there might be a switch at the end, it's it's complicated, but um, to go back to Noah, there can't be two covenants, the old covenant and the new. When we said the old covenant is abrogated, this is what Jesus meant when he said you can't put new wine in old wineskins, the old bursts. And when he said you can't put new cloth on an old because the old will be ripped. The old covenant is gone. There's no point in sacrificing animals anymore in a temple that doesn't exist, on an altar that doesn't exist, trying to rebuild it to cut the throats of lambs or find a red heifer to burn and sprinkle its ashes. This is insane. We cannot be washed from sin by the blood of animals. They never could. But the faith of the Jews and the Hebrews in that God rewarded with grace to achieve what he promised. And then when Christ comes and washes us in His blood, it is actually efficacious. Ontologically, it works. So the how to understand the old and new covenant, we can understand again with brothers in the Torah as a baby before it's born and after it's born. It's the same baby, right? When Nicodemus said to Jesus, can a man go back into his mother's womb? No. And that's why you can't have the old covenant anymore. It's gone. You've been born. And when you're born, you have all this light space. You meet loads of people. You get to know your mother and father. So with the new covenant, you have all this light of grace and understanding of the mysteries revealed. You have all this freedom of movement, um, which, which is grace strengthening our will. And you meet your brothers and sisters in Christ and you get to know your mother Mary of the church and God the Father. So. That there cannot be a dual covenant, especially as the Torah has 613 commandments, most of which are due with the tabernacle and the temple, which are gone. It can't be you done. You can't follow place. those. They some Jews try to say that our Lord Jesus Christ was a lawbreaker and that he broke the law of Moses. He did not. That is such a wicked slander, even today. There's nothing. Jesus did against the law of Moses nothing when he picked the grains in the field and his apostles and ate them that's not against the law of Moses that's the law of men the Pharisees who the Pharisees have a noble zeal but when they start creating man-made laws and imposing those on people this isn't the law of Moses Jesus said Moses spoke about him and if you believe Moses you will believe me which is true so the, the old covenant is gone, and this attempt by Rabbi Sachs to say that we can have both the Abrahamic covenant for the chosen people, the Jews, and the Noahide covenant, which is more to do with natural law don't sodomize anybody, which is true, but that's not going to get us to heaven. Simply not violating natural law will not get you to heaven. You need the life of grace to be searching for God. Um, he says the way we can hold this in in our heads is by abandoning or he says judaism doesn't recognize the principle of non-contradiction that's right so they have this house of shammai was it in the house of hillel who asked uh, was it better that man was created or better if man had not been created because of sin and one said it would be better that we weren't ever created and one said no better than we created and then there was a voice from heaven said you're both right now you you can find is that, the,
0: is that in the Talmud or something like that? Yeah,
1: yeah. So
0: you know what this you know what this is, Father? It is. It's like it's almost pantheistic. I mean that sounds like pantheism. I it it well actually you know what it sounds like. Um, I was just at at the canceled well it sounds like Gnosticism but I was just at the canceled priest conference and um. Uh, Michael Hitchborn, he was reading. He did a speech on um tear de chardin mm-hmm. and um the one line that the thing you know the spiritus mundi the spirit of the world says to tear de-, 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 de chardin in the desert is I'll, I'll either be saved with you or you'll be damned with me and it's like mm-hmm. you can't be like the things either evil or it's bad it's not both it sounds like the same kind of spirituality
1: yeah it, it's a complete rejection of the truth of the cross which then sends you mass as he- Mad e. Michael John says, if you reject the logos, who is Christ, then you, you're left with insanity.
0: Yeah.
1: So you earlier you said that the Novus Ordo has Jewish table prayers. Yeah. Where did these come from? People think that the new mass was written to please the Protestants because you see Protestants using the Missal of Paul VI for their worship especially anglicans or perhaps some lutherans would use it it was done to please protestants by removing the language of sacrifice and the priesthood and the real presence
0: yep.
1: where does that come from jewish academics are writing today with pride boasting how the reformation was the result of jewish work in the 16th 17th century that's the origin of protestantism a rejection of Mary, the mother of God, of the Holy Eucharist, of the Catholic priesthood, of the papacy. All these Protestant traits have come from Judaism. So Martin Luther, for example, when he began, he was learning Hebrew from the Jews and their theology, and he actually turned furious against the Jews when they didn't follow him later on. He stupidly thought they would. But in his early years, he was formed by them, by their theology, by their thinking. This is where Protestant comes from. That is why they misunderstand zionism now and israel and they think that political israel geographical israel is somehow a fulfillment of the biblical prophecies about israel it isn't we're meant to understand this spiritually the church is the new israel and those who are baptized in christ are those who passed with moses through the the waters in the desert and so the the book of tobit for example which Saint Beard explains how that's about the conversion of the Jews, because the father was blind, but at mm. the end his healed him. This is about the veil being removed from the hearts of the Jews. The the Jews and the Protestants don't recognize the Book of Tobit as canonical.
0: That's right, or Maccabees. And I was going to say, Maccabees is extremely important as well, um, especially f- especially for understanding the the errors of the Pharisees. Um, because it's clear in Maccabees that there's a letter of the law and a spirit of the law, and Christ is fulfilling the spirit when he's here. Um, You know, I think of the example where the Jews are slaughtered on the Sabbath because they don't want to fight back. And Judah, Maccabee, and others goes, hey guys, you don't have to have your head chopped off to follow the Sabbath law. If somebody's swinging a sword at you, you're allowed to swing back. You know, and this is, uh, both Protestantism and Judaism fall into legalism. You know, Protestantism is uh using the law to get out of the law in in a sense it's like well there is i mean really there is no law um because you know you're saved you're saved and you love jesus and everything's fine and how could you ever follow all the laws it's sort of like a -a get-it-a-jail-free card whereas orthodox religious conservative judaism is only law you know and we saw this recently with um what's his name dennis prager he was um on one of those Daily Wire shows, I never watched the whole thing. I just saw a clip of it, and, and they were talking about is pornography usage a form of adultery? And he basically said no because it's not in the Torah. And then someone said, "Well, what about following uh, coveting your neighbor's wife?" He said, "Well, yes, because it's in the Torah." <laughs> he was like, "Yeah, it says don't covet," and um, it doesn't talk about the pornography in the Bible. And it's like, well, that's completely legalist.
1: The, the whole problem of legalism is partly because Moses came as the lawgiver. And if you don't understand his meekness, his interceding for his people and willingness to die for them, in which ways he points to Jesus Christ and take the law as the be all and end all, it becomes a weapon as we see today all around. For example, that last election in the USA is decided by lawyers and not by democracy. Lawyers are destroying the world. Because yes. they, they've made so many laws and so complex that nobody knows what's going on anymore. Nobody can know unless you, you devote your life to law. Mm. And then you just use the law. It's not a matter of justice or truth. It's just who has the most lawyers to get their end. Where does this yeah. come from? It's carnal understanding of the word. So, St. Paul tells us mm. the letter kills, the spirit gives life. Now, the letter cannot contain the full truth of the meaning of the word. So even the Holy Scriptures, although they are inerrant and truth and the revelation of God, they're not the fullness of his word, right? which is a person, Christ, the son of God. And if you try to reduce the revelation of God to the material aspect of a word, which means the letters on the page or the sound that you hear, and you don't understand the meaning behind it, the depth of it, which is divine charity, he gives us his son who's willing to die for us. Then you will end up being dominated by the material instead of the form. You, the, you know, the church teaches with Aristotle everything is made of form and matter, and they fit together perfectly as a man and wife, in fact, as Christ and the church, as the divinity of Christ and his humanity fit together perfectly as form and matter, as mm-hmm. the soul and body fit together as form and matter. So the divinity of Christ fits with the humanity of Christ. So Christ and his bride, the church, so a man and his wife. But if we invert that order and say the material has precedence or deny the spiritual, this is the carnality of the Old Testament of thinking the law gets life.
0: We see this, we we see this in the church, and I got to give myself a shameless plug for my SSPX book. And you know, the greatest enemies of the society are all canon lawyers or se- secular lawyers. There are some good lawyers like Chris Ferrara, who is a faithful man, who is classically educated, who, f- and also his legal work. His legal work is fighting against the legalism essentially of the United States. He's always protecting churches and things like that. You know, he, so he, there, there's a, so he's, he, he's got the, the right mindset of the spirit of the law, and he's using that to his advantage in the law. But whether it's in the church uh, from canon lawyers like Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Burke is very good in many ways. He's been said very many good things. Um, but when you listen to him talk about the side of St. Pius Tenth, it's like, I don't know what the mental gymnastics he's doing. And it's, he's a canon lawyer, you know, um, um, you know, there's various others as well. And it always comes down to like canon law, law in general, positive laws, whether it's of a society whether it's of um, the church, which is a society, but, a, you know, a, a ecclesial society or a secular society, you can't negate all the other ways of knowing things. You know, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine, Joshua Charles, who is excellent on biblical typology. Anthony um, from Avoiding Babylon, he did a speech excuse me, at the uh, Canceled Priest Conference on biblical typology you know, I talked about this in my book about Archbishop Lefebvre, and and it was your idea with John at the Cross and the Church and Her Passion and these kinds of things. And it's like, this typology works. You can't come to me and say, well, we're not going to go with the overarching metaphysical narrative of Revelation because I can't find it in my code of law. It's an extremely blind, it's a blind way to look at things. It's pathological. And you see this today with a lot of the uh, popes blaming apologists and things like that who, who try to, you know, pr- I saw the recent one, you know, um, Pope Francis gave a letter to James Martin, give me a break. And they're like, well, you know, basically, basically what they're saying is by the letter of the law, the Pope did not technically write something approving of immorality and heresy. And the analogy I gave, it's like, yeah, by the letter of the law, my dad didn't technically say do drugs. He just sent the drug dealer a letter and said, here's an attaboy. Good job, buddy. And it's like, it's the same thing. You have to look past the letter of the thing to understand the spirit. And that error, this error, which is found in rabbinic Judaism and Protestantism is destroying the catechetical nature of the church. People do not know how to look past the letter of the law and the spirit of the law and i think that this is evident in what you're talking about
1: i, I fully agree and typology works because the material the immaterial the spiritual always has to be greater infinitely than the material which tries to contain it so that material realities of history and persons and things point to things that are much greater than them that's and right and the spirit that we only have to obey the law I get a lot of comments like this about that I shouldn't say we should resist Francis Um, and people think, no, all you have to do is do what the Pope says and everything's going to be fine. You'll get to heaven and we'll have peace on earth. But if that were the case, then why has God given any of us a brain or free will as if or why has he asked us to love him and love our neighbor if all we have to do is pray the Pope? See, It worked for 2000 years. Although there have been weaknesses in the papacy, it worked. And now God wants to really test us. Are we satisfied to simply say, I'm following the Pope. I will shut down Latin masses. Or I will tell Trades they have to go without it because yeah. I'm following the Pope. Oh, well done. Is that charity? Is that the heart burning with love for God and for neighbor? That's going to yeah. bring you to heaven and bring others. No, it's not. It's an abrogation of the, of the spirit. And and so the law can never be enough. I, I, I'm as an Englishman, I love the rule of law. We need yes. the rule of law, but yep. the law has to be light. It has to have a, a light touch, and the emphasis is in the judgment. That you need to appoint judges who judge who don't have so many laws on the books that they can find a precedent for every case.
0: And and common law. This is something that you know. I'm from a Commonwealth nation as well. Our our lawyers still wear fancy outfits when they go with wigs and stuff like that sometimes and uh, just like yours and common law is very different than constitutional law and i think this is a big thing that is hard for people to understand because the american understanding of law isn't catholic okay i know there are some people who say you know there was some influence of these scholastic and there was i'm sure like these men who started america they obviously were very smart and read tons of books and things like that and i get that they had a classical education but they also were highly, heavily influenced by Hobbes and, and these are the types of thinkers who were not classical thinkers. They were very much revolutionaries in their thinking. They were, it was eclectic. The American Constitution is eclectic. 50% of it, 60% looks awesome. The other percent you go, well, oh, that's just straight liberalism. But anyway, but common law, this t- common law is Thomistic. Common law is, you know, Brian McCall gave a speech at the conference the other day where basically one of the most important things in law is that something has just been done forever. And if it's been done forever and it doesn't harm anyone, and that's the way you do it, then you actually have no right to change it, even if you think you have a better idea. Custom has the force of law. In our country, why do you do this the third Friday of every May? Because we've done it for 600 years, why? Who cares, we do that. And it's not irrational, it's proof that this does fatil- facilitate the common good. It's proof that this does facilitate the order of your society. And any any going against that thing is anarchistic in a sense. And this oh, yeah. is the nature of common law. Common law is this organic understanding of the letter and the spirit having been played out over decades and centuries so that you can balance the the necessity of both of them. And this is, this again, this is completely lost in Protestantism because Protestantism is anti-tradition, and it's also completely lost in rabbinic Judaism because rabbinic Judaism is not Judaism. It's not the Judaism from before the covenant, so there is no tradition to it. There's a manufactured tradition, if that makes sense.
1: Yes, and and it's also present in those who think that the Pope has authority to shut down the traditional mass, where an immemorial custom has the force of law. That's a custom that goes back further than living memory, so further than anybody alive. So 100 years now the traditional mass is it's is just thousands old. of years old it's old <laughs> I, I, you know it goes back before adam and eve every flower every tree and every uh, shaft of wheat proclaims the incarnation mm. and the crucifixion and the the resurrection and because yeah. I don't don't know if I get into that now, it's a bit off track, but it's all about the seed falling and dying to bring new life, or the flower being the end of perfection that then spreads its scent like a spirit, like Christ was the end of this biological line, but then universalized the covenant, Um, or the tree, which is the cross that bears fruit. So even before Adam and Eve, you had God laying this into the Garden of Eden. That's how far back the tradition's gone, and the idea that man can decide, now we're going to have a new mass. They're elevating the authority of the lawgiver far above what god has actually written into history creation reality and revelation and
0: well you and i talked about this sorry father you and i talked about this briefly in our last episode the the mass is creation uh you you, if you take away the mass entropy destroys the whole living order of the universe um
1: in the last two years, with, when you're speaking of constitutional law, there's an English constitutional law expert, um, I'm sorry, I don't recall his name, but he was saying that when a jury was assembled, they're not only judging the accused, whether they're guilty or not guilty, they're also judging the law that is being applied, whether or not they're willing to accept that on the books or not. In, in, in the earlier centuries, the jury could say, we don't want to be governed by this law. This law is tyrannical. We're not going to say whether this person's guilty or not. We reject that law. And then this, this is where common law emerges that, that the commoners, that the people said, we don't want to be governed by that law because people want also the common good. They want rational laws that serve the common good. And when the tyrant tries to impose one that is against the common good, the people reject it. And that was understood in com- the system of common law. And then we had the, COVID tyranny, the most irrational measures, which you could hardly get a group of 12 people selected at random to agree to, although they didn't even
0: know what they were, they changed all the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was madness, including the, the, the insane measures imposed on the churches by the hierarchy itself. So unworthy. And I think that this has come from this distortion in our understanding of the cross. Yes. This comes from Judaism, through Protestantism, now into the church, through the false ecumenism and faith that we see with Francis's universal fraternity. The Abrahamic house of all Muslims, Christians, and Jews being together, because they imagine they all somehow have a faith that Abraham had. And even more than that, all mankind. That we could, This is an illusion and the, the Torah protects us from it, as well as the New Testament. We have to admit there is a brotherhood between Jews and Christians, but also see there is a mortal enmity. The elder brother wants to kill the younger. And Cain actually did it, killed Abel. Esau sought to kill Jacob. Ishmael would have completely corrupted and perverted Isaac. Mm-hmm. Joseph brothers wanted to kill him and then decided to sell him to slavery instead. And, and, and there are problems with Aaron and Moses that have to do with the synagogue, the Aaronic priesthood, and Christ and the church. Um, but the Torah shows us there's a development of a, a reconciliation that's to be brought about through the liturgy through holy mass so that Isaac went down to live where Ishmael was at the end of his life and they buried their father together and then Esau and Jacob when they reconciled it talks about lifting their eyes Jacob pressed and saw Esau. This means the church is lifting our eyes as in the canon of the math and understands about the Jews. And then Esau lifted his eyes and saw all the children and animals of Jacob and said, who are these? This is like the church returning to the Jews and saying we've filled the world, we've filled the world. That mission that Christ sent us on is accomplished. The time of the Gentiles is complete. Now you are going to, well we don't say you're going to convert, but they will. But they, sorry, they buried their father.
0: Yes, talk yeah. about that, because we I made a note about the both buried their father in the reconciliation. Why don't you explain that for us?
1: So b- burying your father is a religious right. Yeah. It's your confidence in the resurrection. You want his bonds preserved for the resurrection. And the patriarchs were buried in that cave with Abraham and Sarah. Um, and even Joseph said he wanted his bonds carried back from Egypt to be buried with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and not left in Egypt. It's this sign that if you are with Abraham on the day of resurrection, well, you're going Mm -hmm. to heaven. Yeah, so Isaac and Ishmael buried Abraham together. Then Jacob and Esau buried Isaac together. And then Joseph and his brothers buried Jacob together. I hope I've not got confused with any of that. I'm sure the comments will tell me if I have. (laughs) And it's the sign that after these long separations of brothers, they come back for this religious and liturgical rite, honoring their father which who is God the father and then we have Moses and Aaron now they died separately were buried on different mountains but there's an awesome scene with Zephyr the wife of Moses who completely saves the day when when, um, it says that at the inn God was about to kill Moses because he didn't circumcise his son and then Zephyr did the circumcision and said thou art a bloody spouse to me and so God was satisfied and it's it's bizarre and then the very next verse is about Aaron and Moses kissing and embracing at the mountain of God which means that the altar and mass and then there's this banquet where Zephyr Has her former family of Jethro and the pagans. He was the Midianite pleasing to God. Her new family with Moses and her two boys, uh, Gershom and Eliezer. They that means they're half Hebrew, half Gentile. And I think that stands for the Church, Our Lady with the Church. And then Aaron comes with all the elders of Israel. It says to the same banquet, and it says how they took bread and offered the holocausts and bowed down and worshipped. This is clearly about holy mass and Zephyr is the one who's standing for a lady who brings everybody together for it um, at that mount God where Aaron and Moses kissed who represent the Judaism and Christianity but the, I, I, by no means am I saying Judaism is correct or that there's not been a problem for 2,000 years it, it, it's the biggest single problem in the world how we react to the crucifixion whether we say it matters or not, whether we can be indifferent to it or not, whether people still accuse Jesus of breaking the law of Moses or not, which is an absolute lie and a scandal. There's no evidence for it. People say Jesus didn't exist. He who is existence. They They deny that he's the Messiah or the son of God because they say there's no evidence and then accuse him of breaking the law of Moses. Well, where's the evidence for that?
0: You know, it's, am- you know, what's amazing father. Some of these, um, fellows like Joe Rogan, these sort of big podcasters who play the skeptic card. I swear they have probably done like 150 hours of podcasting over the last 10 years each on the existence of aliens and why there's evidence for aliens. And then you start talking about Jesus and it's like, ah, well, that's just written down in a book. I mean, come on, you know, whoever believed a book. It's like, well, you're going to have to deny you. You're going to have to deny Deny all the Caesars, you're going to have to deny, you know, you know, uh, the, the various emperors and things like that. And the only evidence we have of those is sometimes it's written down and sometimes it's just a bust that somebody made, you know, it's a statue and, but we, we know that's good enough because people don't make lifelike statues with a name and a date on it unless someone is there. That's just, that's psychologically impossible. You know, it's just not something that happens. And if there's the odd hoax, it's, it's not common. And, uh, with Christ, I mean, it's the Jews attest to his existence just to insult him in the old and the post uh, post um, uh, post temple Talmud. So both his detractors and his supporters, both both um, affirm his existence wholeheartedly for, for very different reasons. So this idea of people can just deny the existence of Christ, it's like, you know, you I guess they've denied reality at a certain point. Well,
1: God wants to know what's in our hearts he knows already what he wants to show us what's in our hearts so no one on the day of judgment will be able to argue with the judgment they receive because our life will reveal it christ is a living force shaping the world now and has done forever basically and the when we look at the cross we have to ask the question that joseph asked his brothers when they came to egypt begging for bread and he said have you a father and a brother and they said, yes, with a father who, who is um, basically has this younger brother, Benjamin, whose other brother, Joseph said, is dead. And if if it goes badly with Benjamin, then the father will, hoary head will be taken down to uh, Shoal or to Hades. Now, this is the question Jesus asked us on the cross. Do you have a father and a brother? And we're supposed to say, yes, we have God, the father who sent his son. Yes, we have a brother, Jesus Christ. We had a brother called Abel and murdered him. We had a brother called Isaac and abused him. We had a brother called Jacob and we persecuted him. We had a brother called Joseph. and We sold him into the slaves and thought he was dead. We had a brother, Moses, and he came back after a generation away, 40 years away in the desert, he came back and kissed Aaron at the mountain of God. This is how it ends. Again, Moses and Aaron is not the fulfillment of that reconciliation of brothers. It's not because after that, all the prophets were murdered because they announced Christ, because they spoke the truth. That's why they were murdered. And then Jesus himself was murdered. But he has a better plan than all these people who say the Jews of the synagogue of Satan, they cannot convert. We have to write them off and hate them. This is not what Christ did on the cross. It's not what Saint Stephen did. It's not what Saint Paul did or any of the apostles or any of the saints. They've done something different. They've said they are our brothers. Let's not deny that they're our brothers. But there's a mortal enmity which we're not going to return in like manner. But we're going to be ready for self-sacrifice. Preach the truth with charity and be ready to die for it. And that's what will convert them. And the others like Francis say we're all brothers and there is no enmity. But if you say there's no enmity, you're denying the truth of the Old Testament, the New Testament. And it's as if to say the reason it is, I think, is deep down to say there is no sin. People who yeah. don't want to get their sinfulness, they don't want to go to confession and say what their sins are. They, and you, the reason is it's not because people are so attached to their sin that they can't imagine life without it. It's because they don't believe in God's mercy. They don't believe he'll forgive yeah. them. Yeah. They don't have it in their heart to forgive. They don't believe God will forgive them. And they're judging God by man's standards, which is what Judaism does, by the way. Yeah. When it says it's impossible, God can't become a human nature, who are we to put a limit on God of what he can or can't do or what he would or wouldn't do with his love? So this human feeling that I can't forgive myself and therefore I can't see how God would the, the only way out of that is to deny sin and hell, because it's impossible to face hell. You can't knowingly, willingly face hell. If you're sensible and honest, you'll repent and say, God have mercy on you and trust him. But if you're measuring God by your standard and say, there are certain things I won't forgive. Like, like these people who say there's things the Jews can't be forgiven. That's complete nonsense. I, I I know how much I've been forgiven. I know God can forgive anything. As Joseph made clear with his brothers, God did this all for the salvation of the world. And it, Joseph didn't bear a grudge against them. He spoke gently and mildly. And that, that's how it will be with the last generation of Jews. And Which truth is also, did I say that's in Hosea and Malachi? And Pope the IX identifies it. Bishop Challen identifies it. It, it's in, I think, the book of Judges and the relationship of Saul and David. Um, it's just throughout the Old Testament. And we, if we see this and have faith in it, I can't remember if I said this at the beginning of a talk, it gives us hope and it gives us ch- charity um, yeah. so that we don't
0: fear. Again, it's just a genetic fallacy. You can't. You can't apply a characteristic to a group as if it's immutable to the nature of each individual person. This is impossible. This would de- deny people's free will, deny being made an image likeness of God. Again, the word racism is stupid today because everyone's racist. But the reason why we inherently know that a certain form of bigotry or prejudice is silly is because we understand that you can't apply immutable characteristics to all people that are not something you know you can't you can't associate with a skin color or an ethnicity or a shape of a nose or a color of hair or whatever because that doesn't make any sense on the other hand um you know this uh, jewish exceptionalism that is common amongst evangelicals and neocons or to catholics is also wrong um because it's a denial of history it's a denial of the scriptures and you know this is one thing that i want to i want to mention again you know um we see this error play out in the conversations that Catholics have, so on the other hand, on the one hand, the Nova Sordo Catholics talk about the Jews being I'm, I'm generalizing here people, Ordo, you know what I'm saying? It's just sort of the sort of the, the mainstream conservative Catholicism. The Jews are our older brothers, they're this, the, we're, you know, we're Semitic, the Jews are our older brothers, and because of that, we have something to learn from them, as if they're superior to us. On the other hand, the other extreme is there's no possible way the Jews are our brethren at all uh, because it's all the Antichrist or something. But the problem is, is that the the like most things, there's a golden mean. Literally, chronologically, Judaism is the elder brother to Christianity insofar as it comes before. Okay, and we have the same father. However, the relationship between the older brother and the younger brother in scripture is one of enmity between the older brother and the younger brother we also see this and this is in the new testament because this is not on the new testament but this book of yours but we see this with the prodigal son you know the 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 younger son comes he's a gentile he goes and lives like a gentile he goes out into the world he he rejects the law he rejects his father you know whatever he's lost and then he comes home And then his older brother is kind of going, hmm, I was here the whole time. What about me? And the father is saying, don't you don't understand. Like I have the power and the desire to go and find anyone I choose. And uh, it doesn't matter that he's come later because that was in my plan. And we need to remember these things when we talk about the Jews because we lose the plot.
1: Yeah, and that is in the book, in fact, as a way to understand the thing. Because in the end of time, I think the younger and elder brother in the prodigal son are maybe switching place because you do that makes sense the jews have been unfaithful therefore they can't come to heaven they sound now like the elder brother that doesn't want people to repent and come back to the father yes And doesn't come to the feast and this theme of brothers as well we're seeing zara and faris who um Farah's made a breach himself, you know, Sarah put his hand out the womb and retracted it and then Farah's was born, which is basically physiologically impossible, can't happen. Um, but it did happen because it's recorded in the Bible, but it has a meaning in Christianity, making a breach with the Old Covenant. I think in the uh, Douai Reams it says, what a, no, why have the divisions parted for thee, my son, the mother says to Phares which is like Christ breaking through eternity to enter time in the incarnation. And you have Ephraim and Manasseh. When Manasseh was the elder son, but Jacob crossed his hands to bless them. Jo- Joseph placed the elder son on the left and the younger on the right so that Jacob's right hand would go on Manasseh. And then Jacob crossed his hands, forming the cross. And he said, Joseph said, don't do this, Father. And He said, don't worry, son, I am doing it. The younger will be greater than the elder. This we have with the new covenant. Being el- greater than the old covenant, and th- this theme of younger elder brothers—it's not just Cain and Abel—and in fact, Abraham was the younger brother of Aaron, his brother who died, and we don't know anything about him. And Aaron, A- A- Abraham, everybody knows about, and um, and he rescued Lot, who is the son of the elder brother. So the uh, the the last generation of Jews will convert, and then it goes to all the patriarchs, wow. including Judas sons as i said and then we see it also with david was the younger of eight brothers and and samuel looked at the other and said not this one not this one no i have the youngest um, and and th- there's there's more examples to think of but what about peter and andrew peter was the younger brother and becomes the yeah. pope james and john john was the younger brother and becomes the beloved disciple that's right and then in the canon of the mass we have um Cosmos and Damien, who are brothers, we have Jude and James, um, and Thaddeus is Jude, Um, I should, I'm ashamed, I can't remember the other one, but there's three brothers of Jesus, who in the first didn't believe Jesus, but in the end, they end up apostles, this talks of a later conversion of the brethren of the Lord, and and there's also John and Paul, whose feast we had yesterday, brothers mentioned in the canon, I mean, so that this theme of the the brothers being united in Christ is something that continues in the church. And there's another example that's important between David and Moses. I'm trying to think of it, but I, I can't recall it. Where the the younger brother comes through? Oh, with Solomon. And um, Solomon was not King David's elder, eldest son. He had. I, Adonai um, Absalom and a couple of others, and even Solomon wasn't um, the eldest of David and Bathsheba. They had another son who died yes. because of David's and then Solomon was born. So he's the younger brother, again, who took it. And interestingly, David was mourning and weeping and praying for his little baby with Bathsheba. Yep. And when the baby died, said, David got up, washed himself up, and went to eat. And his servant said, "What's this? You should be mourning because your son has died. Aren't you sad? But it's a sign of prefiguration. It's otherwise an incomprehensible mystery. It is because our Lord is not sad when the old covenant died. He rejoices because he knows he's bringing the new. That's why David got up, washed, and ate, and again, the eating symbolizes the banquet. the Eucharist yeah. So th- th- this this theme of brothers is from the beginning and it will go to the end and it, it's going to end really, really well. Believe me, I put that in volume two as, okay. as much as I can. I mean, there's a lot that you just can't tell. It's just it's going to be awesome. And I beg people, pray for the conversion of the Jews on Good Friday. Pray the pre-55 pre conversion of the Jews. Whatever your priest is doing at the altar, no one can tell you as a lay person in the church what you can have in your head and your heart. Get a little prayer card with a traditional prayer and pray that and don't genuflect. That's, there's reasons for that in tradition. And if we're sincerely praying for this conversion on Good Friday, it will happen in God's time. It certainly will. We've almost lost the entire liturgy. It's hanging on by a thread now. It will come back because it's the strongest force on earth. But we need to understand why and we need to love it. And I think this it it began being picked apart with the Good Friday Prayer for the Jews. And maybe we talked about that last time.
0: Yeah, I know that and if and if Father, if we go back to um the errors the, the errors of rabbinic Judaism making their way into church, and then we see the immorality of the older brothers in the old testament making its way into the behavior of priests in the church. Obviously not all, but some. Um yes, picking apart the prayers to take out the, to take the edge off, so to speak, about the conversion of Jews. Again, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, if your ship is going to a destination and it's one degree off, you can't notice in the beginning, um, but you'll end up a thousand miles from destination if you travel for long enough. And, um, and yeah yeah and yeah because again if you go to the 1955 holy week and you go to traditional chapel or parish or whatever obviously aesthetically compared to the novosordo it's like in paradise you know you feel like you're in tradition land but then when you really start to dive deep into the texts you realize the importance of some of the prayers are lost so it's good lay people pray those prayers and um because we need we need to pray more for the conversion of the jews um and you know this is one thing i want to say as well i mentioned earlier like if you are one of those catholics who um, goes deep in the telegram chats and likes to go deep down the rabbit holes of a lot of the Jewish conspiracies. Well, if that's causing you to have any sort of negative emotion towards the Jews, that must be a prompting for you to love them harder because Christ tells us to love our enemies and pray for our enemies. If you hate the Jews and you don't pray for them, then you're not acting like a Christian. If you hate the Jews and and you don't, you shouldn't have any room in your heart for a negative feeling towards Jews as a group of people in the sense of having an actual hatred, because you should be replacing that with a love for those who are your enemies. You need to love your enemies. You know, this is not something I can stress enough. You're going to stand in front of God one day. It could be in the middle of this podcast episode. Maybe you don't make it. Maybe, you, you know, maybe a Maybe got a blood clot for reasons that we'll never mention on YouTube. Who knows? And um, you're going to have to answer for the love that you had for your enemies. That's going to be one of the things. And if and if you recognize someone as your enemy, fine. But then you you go into a fit of hatred. This will damn your soul. You know you can't die unless you know. We talk about the re- reconciliation of the brothers that we see. Um, you know we can say with certainty Cain lost his soul. Um, because because Cain hated his brother and he killed him, but then we see that this there's almost in a sense they're sort of almost learning from this mistake and we do see this enmity between the brothers but we see reconciliation. Um, you'll lose your soul if you go. And, and this is a warning to my fellow traditional Catholics. I see this sometimes and it's a it's a real problem. If you go down the rabbit hole too hard on the Jewish conspiracies, you're going to lose your soul because you're going to die hating uh you're going to die hating someone you're meant to love because of your enemy and and it's it's not good
1: yeah and the other error is to deny that we have enemies that's right how can you if you deny that we have them so we have to face it, it that it's a real enmity but we see that christ on the cross conquered it with love so to either to hate them is to deny why christ died and to deny the enmity is to not to deny how he died um so we have both and that's what this first book is trying to show there is a way through this minefield and um in a few months I hope to publish volume two and then start some controlled explosions of the mines so that nobody gets hurt
0: (laughs) it's perfect father this has been wonderful um and I still want to have you on to talk about um crucifixion to creation because that is um that's an idea that I need to understand. I understand it a little bit. I know it in my gut. I want to understand it better. And I want the audience to understand it better. So we'll, we'll arrange that for the next couple months or something like that. Um, and you let me know, you know, whenever you want to come on, talk about anything. I love your commentary. And ladies and gentlemen, um, again, if you believe Moses, this is the the copy you buy on Amazon. won't have this sort of author copy thing on it. That's... um that's just the pre the pre the pre-release copy but by that book um what father is doing here is extremely courageous um again he's a traditional priest and there are problems within some of the thoughts of of lots of traditional not well some traditional Catholics that have this you know some people are going to criticize father because he's being quote unquote too soft some people are going to criticize father because he's being too hard if you're getting it from both sides, it means you're probably over the target. And Father is on the target in this book and I recommend everybody support him. Buy this book. You can find a link for that in the description to this video. Father, anything you'd like to say before we leave?
1: Just God bless you. And I've really enjoyed the conversation and I certainly look forward to more conversations with you. Um,
0: the, 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 the future is gonna be tough, but it's gonna be very, very good. Yes, yes, excellent. All right, ladies and gentlemen, You know, Taylor Marshall always says at the end of his show, be be the salt of the earth and go, or whatever, go out there and be salty. I can't steal that. So I always say, let me know what you think in the comments. And usually the comments are pretty good. So ladies and gentlemen, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.